are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. I want to bring you a message on the grace of God of the story of the 7th, 2nd Samuel 9, for those of you who don't have a school for your Bible. It's page 364 if you have a school for your reference Bible. 2nd Samuel chapter number 9. Now I'm about to read one of the most unusual stories I think I've ever read in all the Bible. One reason I believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God is because of the typology it contains. The Bible could not have been written by human hand. No way, no imaginable way that a human being or any group of men, for that matter, could have ever written or produced the, the Bible. It's so minute in typology. And one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel, I think, in all the Bible is the story that I'm about to read in Second Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there yet any left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said to him, Art thou Ziba? And he answered, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is of the house of Baker, the son of Abiel, in the land of Lodibar. Now, when Mephibosheth, uh, that's one of those impossible Hebrew names that sometimes you run into in the Old Testament. And if you stumble over the name Mephibosheth and have difficulty pronouncing it, don't you feel badly. Because all of us stumble sometime or another over these names that we find in the Bible. So you're not alone. You'll be assured of that fact. I was preaching at a missionary conference uh, several years back at McCullough Baptist Church in Macon. And I was reading there in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 6, probably was, or 7. And uh, down in the chapter, the, the Sea of Galilee is called Genesaret. And that's one of the names for Galilee. And I saw, as I was approaching the word, I could see it ahead of me. And I knew right then I was not going to be able to pronounce that word when I got to it. I mean, my mind just completely failed me. And I could not in my life at that moment had depended upon it, upon us, upon that name. And I knew I was going to stumble. And that made a bad situation even worse. And when I got to it, sure enough, complete blank, I couldn't have said Genesaret at that time if my life had been dependent upon it. So I turned to the pastor behind me and I said, say it for me. And he said Genesaret. Then I went on. But I thought to myself, why in the world did Mark put that there instead of Galilee? And I am going to get to him and go ask him why in the world he said Genesaret instead of Galilee. Because they get awful embarrassed that night. So all of us have these problems, and don't you worry about it if you can't pronounce some of these Hebrew names. But this name is Mephibosheth. Look at it in your Bible. In verse number 6, I'd like for you to get uh, somewhat acquainted with it. Mephibosheth. You certainly, are you sure that's the pronunciation? Well, uh, depending on uh, which side of the track she was raised up on, and depending on who's the judge. As far as I'm concerned, I have the right pronunciation. If there's a high school, a college English teacher here tonight, they may argue with me a bit, but as far as I'm concerned... I think I have the right pronunciation. Now, when Mephibosheth, verse 6, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul, uh, was coming to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. 
And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and I will restore uh, to thee all the lands of Saul thy grandfather, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Now that's eternal life. Now one thing that marks the Grand Baptist camp meeting is the fact that we believe in eternal and everlasting life. This is not a fallen grace outfit. You can find one of those down at Malden, at the campground down at Malden. And, that, and you can find one over here at Grant, the Westland campground. But this is not a fallen grace outfit. Now this is a Baptist crowd. We believe that we're going to eat bread at the Lord's table continually, not for a while and then lose it. We believe in eternal and everlasting life. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you're in the wrong view. And I just reminded you we can get the other doctrine. And so you might ought to sit in that view. We believe in eternal and everlasting life. Once saved, always saved. Wait a minute. You mean you believe that? Sure, I believe that. Because the Bible teaches eternal and everlasting life, you see. And so uh, here is a good indication of that. You're going to eat bread at my table uh, continually. And then the king, uh, and he bowed himself rather, and said in verse 8, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? I think that's one of the most classic statements in the Bible. Mephibosheth, the lame prince, when he heard that which David had said in verse number 7, cried out, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog? Now, ordinarily, you might uh, be a little bit uh, embarrassed to call yourself a dead dog. Uh, but in the eyes of God, the last one of us are, the best one of us are, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so you might as well just uh, stand there with uh, a pebble set and cry out to God, what is thy servant? Why would God love me? Why would God love this company? Why would God love each of you in the tabernacle tonight? In my hand, no price do I bring. And I have nothing to offer to the Lord but a sinner without God and without hope. I brought the sinner, God provided the grace. And that's the only thing in the world that you can do to be saved, is to provide a sinner, and God does the rest of it, you see. What is thy servant, that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called Ziba, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertains to Saul and all of his house. Thou, therefore, and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruit of the land, that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, shall eat bread always at my table. That's eternal life again, by the way. Uh, as for Mephibosheth, thy master's son, he shall eat bread always at my table. Now, Zeba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then said Zeba unto the king, according to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's son. What a tremendous story that is. Now I'm aware of the fact that when I begin to think about the grace of God, that I'm dealing with an impossible subject. There'd be no in the world that a finite mind, and mine is certainly limited, could describe the indescribable grace of God. To tell the grace of God is like trying to hug a mountain. You never get it done. To tell the grace of God is like trying to describe the loveliness of a sunset to a blind man. How in the world could you tell how beautiful this sunset is to a man that had never seen the, the, a sunset in his life? You'd never get it done. You may attempt to tell, but you'd never be able to describe the loveliness of a sunset. The greatest artist that's ever lived, Michelangelo, plus a dozen more like Michelangelo, could never duplicate the glory of a sunset. 
and a blind man could not comprehend the glory of the sunset. Now, for me and you to fully comprehend the grace of God is something like that. We'd never be able to get it completely done. We make an effort. We try to tell it. Then we back up and say it all over again. We try to sing it. Then we back up and sing it all over again. We write it. and Then we back up and we try to write it all over again. Actually, the preaching of the gospel is a repetition of John 3.16 and has been now for these 2,000 years. You're not going to add anything to it. Certainly, you're not taking anything from it. But we spend our lifetime trying to describe that which our minds and our, our energy and our strength is simply not able of fully describing. Now, I'm aware of the fact that the grace of God would fit into that category. Yet, though I've tried to preach it many, 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 many times down through the years, the grace of God from one angle or another, another, yet I attempt to do the impossible again tonight by the grace of God. What is the grace of God? What do you think of when I think of the grace of God? I tell it, and I try to repeat it again uh, in this hour. I was at Highland Park preaching in Chattanooga a few years ago, and I was staying in the prophet's chamber uh, there that week, and I went out one day for the noonday meal, and when I came back, I unlocked the uh, door, had a kitchenette and a, a bedroom combination, living room combination, and when I unlocked the door, I heard somebody in the uh, bedroom playing the piano. There was a piano inside, and I thought to myself, I thought I only had a key to the prophet's chamber. And so I looked around the door, and there sat old Dr. Charles Weigel. At that time, he was 90 years old. About He died at the age of 95. But he was in about 90 years of age, and I could imagine that he's trying to pick out the melody of a new song, and I dare not interrupt this master songwriter at his job. So I slipped back into the kitchen, and I sat down and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until after he finished his work. And finally the music stopped, and I said to myself, now I can walk in and ask Dr. Wango what he's engaged in. So I walked into my room, and I said, Dr. Wango, what are you doing? And that old man, 90 years old, who had already written no one ever cared for me like Jesus, I sing of thee, garden of roses, when I stand at the edge of eternity, and 200 other great gospel songs. That old brother looked at me with a sparkle in his eye and with a glee of enthusiasm in his voice, and he said to me, I'm writing a new song. And I thought to myself, sir, if I could have written no one ever cared me like Jesus, I do believe I would have retired. I don't know that I ever tried to write another song. But he said, I'm trying to write a new song. And I thought, just like preachers' songwriters are, we tell the grace of God, and then we back up and start all over again. And I've never preached the grace of God when I thought I told the story like it ought to be told. And Dr. Weigel was that way. And so I said to him, what's the title of your song? And he said, oh, what glory. That was the title of the song. Oh, what glory. And he said, the Lord willing, I'm going to sing it tomorrow in the meeting at 10 o'clock in the morning for the first time in public. And I said, well, I sure want to hear you sing that. The next morning, 10 o'clock, the old brother, 90 years old, having written no one ever cares for me like Jesus, stands up now to tell the story from a different angle with the melody and words of a brand new song, Oh, what glory. And it worked. The power of God fell. I guess I saw 50 preachers on their feet with their hands lifted, praising God in that auditorium that day. As that old brother talked about the glory of an indescribable God. And so it is with you, and so it is with me. We try to tell that which we are aware of the fact that we can fully never tell like it ought to be. And yet there are four things that I want to say about the grace of God tonight. I can say many other things, but four will suffice. Number one, grace is God's loving, unlovely sinners. 
Second, grace is God giving his son for unlovely sinners. And then number three, grace is God lifting out of the mire clay that which could not lift itself. And then number four, grace illustrated with the story of a fellow set. Now, number one, grace is God giving. Number two, grace is God lifting. Number three, grace is God loving. And then number four, grace is God illustrated. Uh, illustrated with a feather set uh, by the story. Now those four things are the sermon in a nutshell. Number one, grace is God loving unlovely sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here it is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a perpetuation for our sin. But God has commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And so here is the love of God. Grace is God loving unlovely sinners. Now, I think I can understand how God could love these fine young folk that stood here a moment ago from the children's home. We certainly love them. I think I can understand how God could love them. I think I can understand how God loves these dear, sainted elders and ladies who rejoiced and shouted a moment ago. I have no difficulty loving these dear men. I have no difficulty loving these good, godly women. I have no difficulty loving Brother Billy Kelly. I have no difficulty loving these 96 preachers that are here tonight. I can understand how God could love good people. I can understand how God could love a clean, fine young man, I think. Or a clean, fine young woman that's never known the primrose path of perniciousness. But when I know that the love of God is infinitely greater than that, then I stand off amazed and declare how could God love a miserable wretch as I know myself to be. And yet I know God loves a wretched sinner as the worst one of us might have been. God loves us, you see. Grace is God loving unlovely people. Not good people. Not young people. Not upright people. Not moral people altogether. But vile, wretched, dirty sinners of the worst caliber. God loves that sinner. And that's the message we're trying to tell around the world with the gospel message. One day I received a letter from Greensboro, North Carolina. And I read that letter, and it said something like this. I'm 55 years old. I live in Greensboro. I've been married three times and divorced. I am a drunkard, a doper, and a adulterer. I've broken all ten of the commandments. I take it that the woman was a murderer also. I'm the most dirty, vile, wretched woman that ever lived in Greensboro, don't no doubt. She said, I'm so vile and so wretched until I hesitated to write to you. I didn't want you to handle the paper that I had to write to write, handle to write this, this letter to you. I'm so dirty. I'm so undone. But, she said, I've been hearing your voice over the radio. And I don't want to go to hell. Is there any hope for a poor, miserable sinner like me? Amen. Now, you don't get a lot of letters like that by the radio. Not the yes, the number you kept here downtown. I buy a nice dinner on 12, at 12 o'clock noon on Saturday. And I said, I'll meet you. And I met him. We went through the line. And while we were going through the line, I told the preacher the story that I've just told you. And I thought to myself, maybe the pastor can visit the one and baptize her. I'd love to have done that. Maybe go into the home and, in, and engage her in his church. And I told him the story. But when I finished telling the story, about that time, we had our trays filled with food. We were ready to sit down and enjoy the food and grace the table and enjoy the food. But when I finished the story, I could not think of the lady's name for the save of me. Now, of course, you never have that problem, but sometimes I forget uh, things like that, you know. I strained, I did my best to command that name, but my best was not sufficient. And finally, I gave it up and I said, Pastor, I'm sorry. I cannot remember the woman's name to save my life. I'll write to you when I get home. It's on the files at the, uh, at the church, and I'll write to you and give you this woman's name and address, and you can visit in the home. When I get home, I'll surely take care of that. 
And we sat down. And about the time we sat down before, we could grace the table of 12-year-old girl, 13 maybe, who I'd never seen before or since. Walked up to me and handed me an envelope. And she said, is this yours? And I looked on the face of the envelope and it said the bright spot hour. It was probably about four. And I said, yes, ma'am, that belongs to the radio. Where did you get the letter? She said, my mother saw you come in. And she said, if he's the preacher that I hear by the radio, uh, I've seen his picture. Maybe it looks like the one. If he's the preacher, give him the letter. And I'll not have to mail the letter. He can carry it in. And I thank that young lady and said, you tell your mother, I deeply appreciate it. And I started to put the letter in my pocket. And automatically, I guess, I looked on the bank and there was that lady's name. And I said, preacher, here's a miracle. The woman I just finished telling you about, whose name I could not remember. Yes, she is. Three tables away. And I said to my pastor, excuse me. And I left my pastor and went over to the table and I sat down with that woman. And she began to talk about how good it was to be saved in God's grace. And I began to laugh as I sometimes do when I get happy in the Lord. And she began to cry. Tears began to run down her cheeks and drop off her chin. And on one side of the table, she was weeping for joy. And I was laughing for joy on the other side of the table. I don't know what people thought, but we were having a camp meeting in the cafeteria. Rejoicing that that reprobate, wretched woman found the grace of God, you see, and got converted. Amen. My, what, a, what an experience that was. And then about two years after that, God gave me another climax to that story. I preached one Sunday at Tabernacle. I don't usually go to a door because we have five doors. And I can't be in all five of them. Uh, maybe Brother Kenneth and myself both good. But I can't be in all five of them. So I just don't go to any of them. I'll hang around the pulpit. And that Sunday, I hanged around the pulpit, and here come a lady up to me. Oh, she's a little older than I, maybe not much. But she said, do you know me? And I said, ma'am, I, I couldn't call your name to save my life. I think I know you. I, I've seen you, I'm sure, but I couldn't call your name. And then she said, and of course, I apologize for that. Sometimes I get in that kind of a jam. But she said, do you remember the lady in Greensboro? And in a flash, it all came back to me. And I said, you're the woman. You're the woman. She said, yes, I'm the woman. She said, I drove 200 miles today to tell you that it still works. <laughs> it's still good. Now, that's grace. That's grace. Grace ruling. Grace ruling. Unlovely sinners. That's grace. Found that wretched woman far down in the sin. She said about herself, I'm the most vile person in the city of Greensboro. Now, if you can leave this tabernacle tonight and find the drunkard and the prostitute and the criminal and the thief and the cusser and declare to them that Jesus loves you, my soul. You have declared truth. So that sinner. Mine is not how deep in sin the mountain gold. God loves that sinner. Then second, grace is God not only living, but grace is God giving. God gave the best heaven has, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only begotten son. Grace is God giving. And he gave the greatest price heaven could provide for miserable sinners like you and I are. I wonder how many of us would lay our life down for our own relatives and our own friends. Not many of us would. Some of you, if you had a, a brother, a sister, a mother, a dad, a child with a kidney problem, you'd gladly uh, donate a kidney. And I could understand that. I could appreciate that. But where is the man that would give a kidney to a drunk? Where is the woman that would offer a kidney to a prostitute? We just don't do that. People just don't do that. But I'd like to remind you that God gave his only begotten son for the prostitute and for the cusser and for the criminal. 
and for the ungodly, and for the blasphemer, and the drunkard. God gave his only begotten son for the vileness of the vile. And that's grace, greater than I can comprehend with my mind. Grace is God loving. Grace is God giving. And then number three, grace is God lifting out of the miry clay. That which cannot lift itself. Have you ever walked through the forest? <clears throat> and here's a spider's web between two trees. And you walk right into that spider's web if we ought to know <clears throat> what you've done. Why does the spider weave the web? Does it weave it as a garment to clothe his body? That's not the answer. Does it weave it to, de- weave it to demonstrate his ability to do something skilled hands cannot duplicate? That isn't the answer. Uh, does he weave it to demonstrate uh, a work of precision? That's not the answer. Does he weave it as a thing of beauty? That's not the answer. A spider's web is a mystery, but that's not the reason the spider weaves the web. One reason, the spider weaves the web as a snap, a, tra- a trap, and a snare. Mr. Spider knows that soon Mr. Fly is coming by, and Mr. Fly is going to light on that web, never to be released another time. So here comes Mr. Fly. He sees the beautiful web. He lights on the web. He marvels at its beauty, its precision. And then in a moment he says, I'll fly away. But when he begins to fly away, he discovers that his legs are hopelessly ensnared. He turns them desperately. But the more he turns his legs, the more ensnared they become. He flaps his wings in utter abandon and desperation. But his wings now also become entangled in those silky cords. And the fly lays over, exhausted. And the spider moves across that web of the greatest of ease to devour the prey. You might have watched that drama, and out of pity for an insect, you might have reached down and picked that fly up and turned him loose. And he would fly away as if to say, thank you, mister. You lifted me out right at the moment of time. Now, I'd like to remind you that the last one of us were ensnared by the silky cords of sin. We were deceived by the devil. We were ensnared in the Amari clay, and one day the eternal Savior came by and lifted us out of the Amari clay and established our feet upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ our Lord. So grace is God lifting that which cannot lift itself. Can the Ethiopian change the color of the skin? Never. Can the leopard change the spot? Never. If you ever get redeemed, God must reach down and lift you out of the miry clay. Salvation is of the Lord totally and completely. And then grace illustrated by my story. Now let's pull back the curtains of a, about 30 centuries from our day. David lived 1,000 B.C., just about, the round figures 1,000 B.C. And here we are, 2,000 A.D. We'll turn back the curtains of 30 centuries, and we find ourselves now in the palace of King David. David founded the city of Jerusalem. David first built his mansion in Jerusalem. Then later on, gathered the material for the temple. And his son Solomon built the temple. But we find ourselves down in the throne room of his majesty, King David of Israel. And David is upon the throne, stately uh, throne, with a scepter in his hand, a crown upon his brow, and kingly garments about his body. And here's what he's done, believe it or not. He has sought out from Dan to Bathsheba. Every single living descendant of Saul, the first king, who was his bitter enemy. And he brought them in one at a time and actually shown the kindness of God unto the last one of them for Jonathan's sake. He had not imprisoned the one, but he had shown the kindness of God to every one of them for Jonathan's sake. He found, now thinks his job is finished. And he says to Ziba, 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 type of the Holy Spirit, David, type of God. The fellow said, type of the sinner. And he says, Ziba, Jonathan, type of Jesus, by the way. Ziba, 
has all of them been brought in. And Zebra is just about ready to say, Your Majesty, your job is complete. And we all marvel at your grace. We all thank God for your patience and your compassion. And your job is complete. When God said, Zebra, there's one that hadn't been brought in. And in the, in the moment, Zebra knew who that one was. And I imagine he might have wrestled with God a moment. He might have said, Now, Lord, I'll not bother his majesty with that man. He's a hopeless paralytic and a cripple. Having never walked a step in his life. And I'll just forget about that man. Maybe I can go to Lodibar and visit him myself. But God said, Zeba, if you give that report, you lie. You tell King David there's one that hadn't yet been brought in. And I see Zeba step up to his majesty and he says, Your majesty, I, I report to you that your job is complete with the exception of one that hadn't been brought in. And I imagine David stands up and says, Well, who is he? And where is he? And why hasn't he been brought in? And then Zeba says, He's a Mephibosheth. He's in the house of Micah, the son of Emiel, down in the land of no bread. And David said, well, go fetch him to me. Bring him to me. And I imagine Zeba said, now, David, let me explain to you. And after I explain to you about this man, if you yet want me to bring him, I shall do so. He said, years ago when the Philistines came against the city, I was about to overrun the palace of, of King Saul. The nursemaid picked up this little boy, then just a baby in arms, and rushed out of the house to try to hide herself and the child from the Philistines. And as she rushed out of the palace, this is in chapter 6, she stumbled and fell on the stone cover walkway. And as a result of that fall, its arms were broken, its skull was fractured, its legs were broken, and the weight of that woman's body fell on that baby. It almost died, but it survived. But as a result of that fall, the child has never walked a step in his life, and now the young man with twisted arms and twisted legs and wasted body is on the land of Lodibar waiting for the mercy of death to take him out of the misery of his life. And David, you'd be awfully embarrassed if I were to bring him before you. His face is all twisted. His hands are paralyzed. You let me visit him for you, King David. I'll be most glad to do so. But King David looked at Ziba and said, Ziba, go fetch him to me. And I imagine Stephen said, yes, your majesty. And then I read between the lines at this point. What I've just said is not between the lines. It's a paraphrased story, but it's an actual uh, event. And I imagine, and I can't find this in the Bible, but I read this between the lines. It's logical. I imagine David said, I, I want you on this last one to be brought in to do something extra. I want you to get the best chariot I've got. And I want you to hit the, hit the two white stallions that's just been brought in from Arabia. And I want you to get all that gold-studded and silver-studded bridle and hitch those white stallions to my best chariot. And in a moment, the chariot driver will pick you up at my door. And I want you to go to Lodi Bar and bring my feather set to me. And I imagine Zebra said, yes, your majesty. And the chariot driver hitched the best chariot David had. Two of the white stallions just arrived from Arabia with beautiful silver bridles. And I see the chariot now waiting in front of the palace, uh, palace for Zebra. And Zebra steps on board. And the driver, driver driver says, where to, sir? And he says, the land of Lodibar, the house of Maker, the son of Abiel. And the chariot driver said, wait a minute, you've got the wrong signal. Don't you know this is the king's chariot? Don't you know this is his best chariot? Don't you know that these white stallions have never been out of the city of Jerusalem? And you mean you're sending them to the land to no bread? Ziba said, you've got your orders, let's go. And that driver picks up the reins and pulls the reins, and that chariot leaves the palace of David, winds through the widest streets of Jerusalem, out one of the gates, and down south toward the land of Lodibar, the land of no bread. 
It passes by the poor houses and the, and the poverty-stricken areas. People look out of the windows and they say, could this be the king's chariot? We have never so seen the king's chariot in this vicinity before in our lifetime, but on and on the chariot goes. Zeba, the driver, the white stallions, the beautiful chariot. After a while, it stopped before the most humble house you've ever seen. And Zeba gets off and walks across an unkept yard, steps up on a, a porch most wasted away, and knocks at a door that may hang on one hinge. And from the inside, a weak, feeble voice says, come in. And Zeba slips that door back as it drags on the floor. And in the corner of that door room is an old, unkept bed. And on that unkept bed is the wasted form of a young man who's been a helpless paralytic all his lifetime with his arms twisted, his legs twisted, his face twisted, his body wasted away. And he steps up to that bed and he says, this is Zeba, his majesty's servant, King David of Israel. Is your name Mephibosheth? Yes, sir, my name is Mephibosheth. Well, I've been sent to fetch you, Mephibosheth, uh, to his majesty, Ziba, his majesty's servant, King David of Israel. Is your name Mephibosheth? Yes, sir, my name is Mephibosheth. Well, I've been sent to fetch you, Mephibosheth, uh, to his majesty's palace. And I imagine Ziba says, not me, sir. Uh, Mephibosheth says, not me, sir. Why, well, I look at my hands. You're not looking for me. I'll not be able to serve the king's table. Look at my feet, sir. I'll not be able to march in the king's army. Your name, Mephibosheth? Yes, sir, my name is Mephibosheth. Was your father Jonathan and your grandfather Saul? Yes, sir, my father was Jonathan and my grandfather was Saul. He said, well, I've been sent to fetch you. Just as I am. Without one plea. But that my blood was shed for me. I see that driver step inside that unkept house and pick that man up like a mother would pick up a baby and bear that boy out of that house in the arms of mercy and put him down in the bed of that chariot. And Ziba steps on board and the driver steps on board and they turn that chariot around to the land of no bread and head that chariot for Oh, happy day! Oh, happy day! When Jesus finally and washed my sins away! Turn that chair around. Woo. I was preaching one night at Tabernacle about 15 years ago on the Febble set, and I got the chair turned around and bogged down, and I couldn't get that chair moving. I was shouting so I couldn't get the chair moving. And after a while, I said, I'll move it now, and started all over again shouting. And about a half an hour later, I got the chair going. <laughs> I wouldn't care if it happened tonight. Amen. <laughs> Amen. To turn the chair around and start back towards the palace of the king. What a day when God found you. He might have found you in the alleys of a texture mill. He might have found you between the rows of corn out in a field of corn. He might have found you in your kitchen. He might have found you in your automobile. He might have found you at a mourner's bench. But whatever it might have been, blessed be the day when the Holy Ghost found you and brought you to King Jesus for mercy and for grace. And when they finally get back to King David's palace, he's ready for them. He's got a pallet before his throne. And they're bringing that lame man and lay him up on that pallet. And David looks at that poor, wretched, wasted form. Zeba steps back. The other servant steps back. And there's silence in that throne room. 
And David steps over to him and says one word. In verse number six, he said, Mephibosheth. He called him by his name. Hey. And I imagine when David said Mephibosheth, it was like a mother's lullaby. She rocks a fever, baby, at the midnight hour. When David said Mephibosheth, it was like the calm after the storm. When David said Mephibosheth, it was like good news from home. And I imagine Mephibosheth said, he loves me. He's not going to execute me. I'm not about to be in prison. He loves me. There's compassion in his voice. And then David stepped a bit closer, maybe touched him on his head, and said, fear not. Don't be afraid. I have not brought you here to execute judgment upon you, but I brought you here to show the grace of God to you. And he said, Mephibosheth, I'm going to give you back everything that a king ever had a title deed to. How do you like that? You've just come in from Lodibar, and you're about to inherit a king's wealth. I'm a child of the king. My father is rich in houses and lands, and I'm from the mighty clay, but I'm an heir of God, and a joint heir with Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Oh, oh, what about that? Praise God. Yes. Amen. How gracious God is. And when David said that, Mephibosheth was overwhelmed, and he says, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Why would you love me, David? Why would you do this for me? I can give you nothing in return. I can't walk in your army. I cannot serve your table. I have only a few years to live. I can give you nothing in return. And now you brought me in all my wants and filth and nothingness and about to restore to me everything that my grandfather, King Saul, ever had a title deed to. Then David said to one of the servants, come over here. And that servant stepped over and David said, I want you to go now to the recorder's court tomorrow and tell the recorder that you want, that King David commands that every foot of ground that Saul ever had a deed to be deeded to Mephibosheth. And he said, yes, sir, I'll take care of that tomorrow. And then he said, Zeb, I want you to take your 15 sons and 20 servants and go out there and till that land when harvest time comes. Don't put that grain in your barn. You put that grain in the barn for Mephibosheth. You know the servants of Ziba who hit the harvest for the Pebbleset and put it in the Pebbleset's barn. Amen. Brother Ed goes there, Brother Ed. Glory. Amen. Then I imagine David said to one of his servants, I want you to fix a plate at the king's table tonight. We've got a guest. And I guess that servant said, Why, Your Majesty, you can't let that man sit at your table. He'll not be able to handle a knife and fork. Look at his hands. Why, you'd be embarrassed. He'd be a source of embarrassment to you and all your family. We'll feed him in the servants' court. We'll take care of it. But one look at David gets the answer. And that night they fixed the plate at the king's table for a dead dog. How do you like that? They fixed the plate at the king's table for a dead dog. A dead dog. A dead dog. Amen. If I'd have had to avoid it, I'd have never made it. But it's given to me by grace. Hallelujah. 
Amen. And then David said to another servant, Are you fixing the East Room tonight? We've got a guest. And I imagine that servant said, Why, David, that's where kings and princes sleep. Will I be able to put that sick man in the East Room? Why, you, you'd never live that down. You couldn't do that. But a second look at the king gets the answer. And they fix the East Room. Amen. Not for king, nor queen, but for dead In my father's house are many mansions. And I'm a nobody, but I've got a mansion on the other side. With a title deed to it. There's nobody can take it from me. Nobody gave it to me but Jesus. And nobody can take it from me. I'm an heir of God and a joint heir. And nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. While all that's going on, the fellow says he's on that pallet. The tears are running down his cheeks and dropping off his quivering chin. And I think maybe I'd slip over to him and say, my fellow says, I, I want to ask you just one question. I would say, what did you do to cause King David to do so much for you? And I imagine the fellow says would say, I did nothing. In my hand, no price do I bear. I have no price to pay. I couldn't pay it. He did it all. And he'd point at King David and say, he did it all. And you and I here in 1979 are pointing to Calvary and to the Christ of Calvary. And we do declare Jesus paid it all. And all the hell she left the crimson stain, but he watched it what is not. And that's the grace of God. I'm so glad that it's so. If it wasn't so, I'd be a miserable creature. But because it is so, everything's all right in my Father's house. Glory. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.